The following production is part of the We Be Geeks podcast collective. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Pop Insider. The Pop Insider has all the latest in news, merch reviews, and other geeky goodness. Whether you're a wizard, a Sith Lord, or a superhero, fuel your fandom at thepopinsider.com. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is a streaming freedom audio bulletin. It cannot be traced. It cannot be stopped. And it is the only free voice left in the Geek Revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It is the Dashing Duo, Derek, myself, Mike, and we are being joined by writing coach, scriptwriter coach, but also known for his work in special effects and art direction. Um, we have on the line with us Kevin Pike. How's everyone doing? Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on your show, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's our honor to have you on. So um, I introduced you first as a writing coach, screenwriting coach. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with that now, since that's the current thing you're doing. I made a change in the career after about 36 years of special effects work and custom props. Um, And then I went into helping special effects supervisors uh, negotiate their contracts better. And I ended up being a talent agent for below the line crafts. And that turned into representing writers, directors, and producers. And when I dealt with the writers, which I enjoyed very much, they always had trouble finishing their scripts to the quality that I wanted before I could send them off to the studios. And so then I transferred into becoming a writer's coach. And that's what I do every morning. I deal with a writer and I help them get through their next part of their script and get to the finish line and get it polished up, ready to pitch. So I take it you've had your share of scripts that you're like, we really need to go back to the very beginning and just redo this. There are some that get ahead of themselves where they really have no story structure. They just have action and then action and action and then dialogue that's not up to par. Um, There's ways to get them back painlessly and start over and realize what Mm -hmm. they really have to accomplish on it. Um, Writers can bruise easy sometimes. Um, Other ones that are more hardcore know what they have to do and take the task very well. Uh, So it's it's sometimes dicey. All depends upon who the writer is. Are you at liberty to say who some of your um, prized pupils have been that you've worked with? Um, That's probably better confidential at this stage of their game. No problem. Um, uh, When we can uh, shout it out, we'd be happy to share. Awesome. Um, so is this something that you're, you're doing from the house? Are you working at a, at a college university type setting? I, I work at home. I have an office and every morning at 10 o'clock 
a writer Skypes me and we begin to chat about what they've done. Awesome. They send their work in the day early or early enough for me to read it and get ready for them. And we talk for an hour, hour and a half, and they go away with a new batch of homework. And hopefully they take the task and take it to heart and get it done. Awesome. That's so, it's, it's so cool. I, I would have never have thought yeah, of, a, really of a writer coach, um, especially for screenplay. I mean, we we know there's been some bad screenplays out there, but I, I never thought there would be someone who who, who would be you know become a mentor to, to help clean things up. And it, and it makes sense with you having been in the industry, having seen a, a ton of, of scripts over your career. Uh, you, you said 36 years. Um, you you doesn't matter if you were a screenwriter then or not. You you know what Hollywood's looking for. Or, or what the independents I are learned, looking for. I learned by being involved in special effects by virtue of being on the set. And I could sit there next to a smoke machine and look at the dialogue written in the script and watch how the actors emote. And as I grew up through the history of the years of special effects, I got opportunities to direct second unit, direct commercials, uh, work in all the mediums from um, sitcoms and the quick change of those scripts. And I, I learned from the gurus that taught, um, like the Bob McKee and John Truby and Sid Fields and Ron Bass and Richie mm-hmm. Walters. And I've taken classes with a, a bunch of them. And then when I got being the agent, <clears throat> I used to go to Pitch Fest and listen to people tell me their stories and learn the basics mm-hmm. of what they are doing well and what they're not doing well, because that's a big part of getting your script sold is the pitch part of it. Um, and so I would coach them on how to write their scripts where they needed to fix certain things or that third act has to be better or the protagonist has to solve his problems or what are the nuances are. And it just kind of grew. And I found a niche that I do fairly well and they're, they're very happy with what they learn. And I think the script comes out markedly better by the time we're done. Sometimes it takes a month. Sometimes it's three months. I've been working on one with the guy. It's a highly technical script. Um, it's a, about a year we've been helping it. Wow. And that's not bad. It's a it's a Jason Bourne, Da Vinci Code mix. And, oh, cool. Um, I hate to compare it to other films, but it's it's gonna it's big. It's meaty, and it's taken us a long time to get through it well. Oh, very cool. That sounds awesome. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. 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 So looking back back on your past is there a script or two that if it was presented to you today you'd be going okay we we got some work on this to, to do um that there's always one or two uh, that you go through your career and it, but hopefully you can choose wisely when you read it um i can't think off the top of my head that i turned something down because the script was so bad because sometimes the work in it was really good and something that i wanted to be a part of and achieve and build or make happen and it was necessary to that story um but i, I read some scripts and i wonder how it was going to turn out and it didn't turn out as well as it probably should have but on the other hand, I've been blessed by working on some really good ones. And, you know, if you take Back to the Future, it's just such a smart script that they made, Bob Z and Bob G. It's it, You can see how long it would take them to perfect that because right. there's so many little nuances and everything has to be changed. Um, when Stephen got into Jaws, he just said, this has to be completely redone and got Carl Gottlieb on board. And they made what came out to be the movie Jaws. 
sometimes you get on a, on a show and the script, eh, what's, I don't know what's going on. And the next thing you know, some rewrites come out and it gets better and it gets better and it gets better. And it was something where they kind of went forward into production earlier and knew that the writer was capable of repairing everything that needed to be changed. Sometimes you get involved and the actors have different discussions about their dialogue. Sometimes there's budgets. Um, the script is really never done. And you get to the end of the movie and you're done filming. And then next thing you know, there's some changes in ADR. Or they go to a test right. audience and it doesn't work and on and on. So um, it's, it's really unique in its way. <laughs> in that meeting, yeah. it's, it's something else. I was looking at uh, was it Prop Culture's website, their auction site, and sure. uh, oh, yeah. there was a I think third or fourth draft of one of my favorite films, Howard the Duck, on there. I'm like, okay, I I knew I knew there was a lot of rewrites. I, I'm curious what's out there past four, but there was also some for for the different Star Wars films too uh, <laughs> of the original trilogy. So, um, Derek, I know I've hugged a lot. Oh, go ahead. You take a look at Howard the Duck. There's some good writers aboard that, yeah. and they had an idea, thought that it was going to work out, and I don't know if it did as well as they might have wished. Um, and you never know. It, it is a crapshoot on every script. Somebody may love it to death. I want to make this movie so bad. This is going to be a big blockbuster, blah, blah, blah. And it comes out and it tanks. And there's sometimes there's outside reasons, some timing, some event in history that's happening, war breaks out, or anything can go down. Right. The, the actor dies shortly after filming, uh, right. and next thing you know, there's a pox on your writing that you had nothing to do with. So that's mm -hmm. all in the mix, too. It's a, it's a big process to make a really good film from a good script all the way to the end and make a lot of money. Well, I loved Howard the Duck. It's one of my favorite films. And eventually one day I will get the story on why that was chosen to be the first Marvel feature film. Yeah, I want to know that, too. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't <laughs> know your answer. For different oh, reasons. Oh, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, Derek, I know I have asked a bunch of questions. I'm going to let you jump in with, with a couple. That way it doesn't seem like I'm hogging. Yeah, um, I'm, I, <laughs> I, I'm curious. Um, have you had to deal with, with somebody who was reluctant to, to make changes or didn't understand why they needed to make changes? And how would you handle yes. someone like that? Yes, I, I give them a little leash. I let it, I pay out some line um, and I say, go ahead. If that's your idea, go through that and find out when you hit the wall what you did wrong. And they realize mm. that, oh, and now I'm in big trouble. I have to do all brand new first act, second act. They have to start over on an idea that they had that doesn't work. Um, it's it's yeah. not so difficult to understand my reasoning. I think I'm pretty fair in my proposals, uh, my knowledge, um, my history of working in film for 45 years between the effects and the writing and the agenting. And right. I don't steer them wrong. I give them sound logic and they say, oh, I get it. And maybe it's not right then when we're talking face-to-face -face on Skype, but they come back like Tuesday of the next week and they say, I got it. I know what you mean now. I see what you said. I, I, I see where I went wrong. And then next thing you know, you get a draft and it's a lot smarter. And it's, it's fun to see that. It's fun to feel that, like a teacher and a student when they, they the light goes on. Um, and it's right. never really a, a big fight. Um, and, and if it is, then 
there's sometimes we just have to part ways with um, my system of teaching and their system of learning, and I wish them good luck. Uh, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be a war. It's supposed to be a class. Right. Yeah, I like that. Very cool. Well, we have a listener question, and this and this listener's got a question for you in regards to your time on Back to the Future. So, fair enough. Uh, ah, he, yeah. he actually sent a recording of his question. So here it is. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? <laughs> Sorry, well, I, I had to that use was the, our choice. I that, had to use the sound. We had a DeLorean, or, or we had a DeLorean, or we had a DeLorean. Um, you want to talk about <laughs> writing? The, the script was originally some idea uh, before me about a plasma ball of energy that was contained somehow. Um, and then they had to put it in a cooler or something, and they decided on a refrigerator. You probably already heard all these stories about it. And then they were afraid kids would try to get in refrigerators and go back in time, and that would be a danger. And then it was like, well, we need to have it mobile as opposed to, like, the time machine that just sat there and just moved over 12 feet and got out. Um, so they put it on a pickup truck. And one idea was to go to a nuclear test site and get energy and get to go back to the future. And then finally, when they were, were sound on the idea that it should be a vehicle of some kind, then they wanted something that represented an alien spaceship when Marty crashes into the barn at uh, the farmhouse. And so the Gullwing was appreciated. Uh, Gullwing Mercedes was priced off of the budget at the time. And so the the firm answer came very quickly. Let's use the DeLoreans. And they were pretty cheap at that time, but okay. based on its history. And as soon as that decision came down, it was boom. And I, I, I walked out of the production meeting, and the next day there was three DeLoreans like – like they just came from out of time and they landed in my parking lot of the shop. And then we started the build based on the art department sketches. So how much variation from the um, pre-production sketches to what was what we saw on screen? How much change was there between them? We had some we had some great sketches from Ron Cobb, who I worked with on the last Starfighter and Andy Probert, who I previously worked with on Star Trek. And um, and so I understood where they were going and we had conversations about it. And Bob and Bob talked about it. It's got to be homemade because Doc Brown makes it. And there was a lot of input. And we had some people from the art department kind of liaison to make sure that it stuck to certain parameters. Um, Michael Chaffee was an art department coordinator that was really good at uh, helping give it some design to where it had to go. But we had a 20-man crew, good electricians, good mechanics, welders, everybody. They actually built the car, and they were instrumental in a lot of the design interpretations from these sketches. It wasn't like we had a blueprint, but we knew certain things had to happen for the sake of the script. It had to tell certain stories. It had to have a plasma, a plutonium chamber, and a flux capacitor, and a Mr. Fusion, and a hook gag, and it had to have where Marty could bang his elbow and turn it on. And um, all of these story points had to be there. And then as we built it, and it got looked at when they came over to see how it was going, which rightfully so, they said, we need something on the dash that helps illuminate the 88. We put those <clears throat> digits on top. And then Bob wanted something behind Marty's head 
um, so that when the speed increased, that you know the audience knew that that was also going on without having to focus solely on the dashboard. So we added that Christmas tree effect behind them, um, and we needed overhead switches and the dates. This is what makes time travel possible. And then we got to the Mister Fusion, and they gave us a coffee grinder, and it was like, wait, we are going to put coffee beans in, and it's going to go to the future, or what's going on here? And then that instantly became no. <laughs> we need something bigger. We need like a big hole, that, like a garbage disposal that you can put garbage in and beer cans and banana peels. And that, that'll be the new energy in the future. Uh, okay. So then we adapted to that. <laughs> and it went through all these different styles to meet the story at different times. So we constantly had to play change. Okay, we need, we need the car with a hook mode in it for this shot. We had an A car and a B car. The B car was supposed to be just for stunts and running and driving shots. And then day two or three, they said, we have to have an interior in the B car, just like the A car. But they would never give us the cars back to marry it up. They were shooting and we were on the set the whole time. So I couldn't be shooting nights and going back to the shop and and helping you go forward. And uh, so there was always that, what mode is it in? Okay, change it back to the plutonium mode and bring it to the set. (laughs) It was, uh, you know, a lot of activity getting them what they wanted, for sure. See, now I want to take my Kia Soul to you and have it decked out like the interior of a of a starship <laughs> okay we can do that we can do that i would be happy to do it for you that would be awesome that would, that would be awesome now that we know how to do it it might not cost you as much as it did to make the delorean into the time machine <laughs> <laughs> maybe just slightly less so slightly the- the design of the flux capacitor, was that laid out in the script or is that something you came up with and then they threw that into the script? No, we knew that that had that, you know, this is what makes time travel possible. And we had a sketch and I don't know whether the sketch came from our build or our build uh, came after some rough idea that they had. But we knew that we had to have some focus of energy. And so we made the triad out of it and we got a box to put something in and made it prominently placed. And we buffed up some aluminum, excuse me, some uh, plexiglass pieces for it. And we put speaker wire, spark plug wires on it to make it look like it had a lot of power going to these kind of glass emitters or whatever they are. And, um, and then we got a strobe light from Radio Shack and plugged <laughs> it in the back of it, and <laughs> it, there it was. What was the best Easter egg you put in the car that people may have missed? Well, when we were making the car, the idea of Easter eggs really wasn't that much in vogue like it has become. Um, uh we were probably way too busy to think about, oh, this would be funny if we put, you know, a teddy bear under the seat or anything like that. Uh, That wasn't in our job. We had so much work to do on that show. And the cars took up, like I said, you know, 20 guys for about 10 weeks. And that had to take all that attention to make it as, as artful and as beautiful and as technical and photographic as it was uh i can't remember anybody saying i'm gonna put this on and this is gonna be funny you know we made we made that radiation come out of the plutonium chamber by looking at a dodge polaris hubcap okay 
but it looked cool, and uh, we took the emblem out so that the radium could go in there, right. plutonium. And so that's kind of like an offbeat touch to it. Oh, by the way, that happens to be from a Dodge, you know. Um, but I don't recall anybody saying, oh, let's hide this, or I'll write my initials on one of the switches, or I don't, I don't know, maybe they uh-huh. did. That's cool. I love I love hearing the stories of how these things are created or put together, or how a lot of times you you have to you have to create things out of various parts and yeah. things that people might consider junk or things like that. It always fascinates me in seeing what comes out of it. We did a lot of that. We happened to have our shop right next door to an aircraft component used part place. And outside the back were their garbage bins. And we could go back there and raid the garbage anytime we needed something. Those those commonly viewed three green tubes on the sides are turnbuckles to balance out the rotors on a helicopter, as an example. And they were Odie green, oh. you know, the holograph military green. They had some stenciling on them, and that was well-liked. And um, the idea about um, just the, the, there's a rotor inside the plutonium chamber that's part of a very uh, rare and hard-to-find. It's like a holy grail piece to when you want to build your own car. That There's a fan, a turbo fan-looking item in there that's hard to come by. Um, a lot of the stuff we made and designed to look like what we thought the drawing should look like the tubes uh, that go down the sides of the car that house the the lights that are underneath we use white fluorescent glass tubes just like neon a little bigger uh, Mm. white phosphorus and we made a series of different pieces out of wire hard wire senate got it made up came back and we had racks and racks and racks of replacements so if anybody bumped into them or broke them uh, we were able to replace them right away and we had the transformers inside the front hood and uh, they came on on cue when they needed to Um, you don't see too many remakes by using neon or glass tube like that Um, the junction boxes we carved them out of wood and the foreman made them up glued them together out of popular oh. hardwood that became the junction boxes um a lot of electrical parts used electrical store where we went and raided all kinds of switches um but the high bright lights the leds they were special they had to be bright enough for the camera we did camera tests with them for the dp to make sure that it could tell a story especially when it changed its timing and you could put put in new um, dates on it. Um, the, every piece was pretty much thought through. All the gauges on the front, the wrenching meter, it, it, you know, it was wild. And then to top it off, we put in this like older looking alarm clock that sits right there in front of everybody on the dashboard because it's all about time travel. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love the. I, I love hearing all of that. Yeah, it's I, I'm looking through your IMDb and I mean, the the other you better sit down, <laughs> you better be sitting down, have a cup of coffee. Oh, the, the stuff you have worked on, the, the, the questions I have on the stuff that you worked on. Um, one of my favorite movies with Harrison Ford, Gene Wilder, the Frisco Kid. That was that was an oh, unusual yeah. bit of business. <clears throat> I um, the original name of the movie is called No Knife. 
no knife. And that must have had some story points mm. that I wasn't aware of. I was working for another supervisor, and, and it was like, we're going to the ranch, which was the old Columbia Ranch, and we're going to do a snow dressing for a scene tonight. So we went out there with all the usual snow gear, which is one of the regular disciplines that you have to learn how to do when you're going to acquire your special effects card. So getting those snow jobs were precious. So you'd always try to suck up to the supervisor that you heard, especially during come on <laughs> wintertime. Hey, can I help you with that snow job out at the ranch? Okay, fine. And we dressed it all in with flake all over the ground, and we erected tall towers, craned up some really large wind machines with the wooden blades and the rheostats called ridders at the time. And um, my job was to be up on top of the ridder. And Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford ride into town, and then Gene Wilder gets into uh, um, a talk with people that are going to take advantage of him and his money. And we set all that scene up, and uh, that was the snow scene we did for a film called No Knife, later The Frisco Kid. Hmm. Then, and it was directed, let me just interject, it was directed by a very famous director, Robert Aldrich, uh, yeah. who was legendary for his work. And to be on the set with him, a veteran pro like that, that that's when you get to learn these things and you realize how the masters do things. Okay. I, I'm going to skip over because I'm, I'm seeing a couple franchises here that definitely we're going to get to, but one of my favorite Spielberg movies that had an amazing cast in it, 1941. 1941. So we happen to be working on a picture for Irwin Allen on the stage right across from where he was doing 1941. And we were doing a show called When Time Ran Out with William Holden, Ernest Borgnine, Paul Newman, uh, Red Buttons, Ugh. just a host of classic actors yeah. and just enjoying the hell out. Uh, this volcano that erupts on Hawaii and kind of wipes them out and they have to get out of there. And Stephen was sitting across the stage and they were doing the shots with the model airplanes flying across uh, the town. And he was doing a forced perspective with these pom-pom guns shooting at them. And it, it was uh, managed by a, a famous special effects supervisor named A.D. Flowers. Mm -hmm. And I went over to say hi and Stephen caught my eye and he said, come on, Kev, sit right here. Let's talk about how we're doing this shot, blah, 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 blah. And I said, are you having fun? And he said to me, he said, I am not having fun on this show. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just killing me. And I said, huh. oh, okay. And, and I kind of just backed out gently and let the scene with all its configurations <laughs> get going. And later, shortly thereafter, we got involved to help again when they did a period picture 1941 on the street with the Christmas decorations yeah, and yeah. all the lights. One of the things that we used to be responsible for was any kind of custom light, custom neon signs. They had old style traffic arms that came down and yeah. lights that were different. And I was responsible in working with the set decorators, set dressers to make sure all those operated on time on cue when all the cars went by. And that was my contribution there. Okay. Um, Escape from New York. Uh -huh. Another classic. Show too. That was fun. Um, it was being supervised by Roy Arbogast, but and he was in need of extra help, and he asked me if I was available. We had done seven shows together, starting with Jaws, and then he supervised Close Encounters, and I said, I'm in. What do we have to do? And we were working out at the dam for the big prison scene with Lee Van Cleef and everything like that, and we were doing wet downs and whatnot, and then we had to deal where 
the glider stops and the dart hits the frame. And um, we had some things with a pod that Donald Pleasance was in. Um, we had a remote control device that went inside the bank and followed everything around. And it, uh, we did a big breakaway scene on the chock full of nuts set where the kind of zombie wild people down inside yeah. the ground and they burst up through the floor and they come out and they run around, and they chase everybody. And the guy goes through the window and all of that. That was pretty big. That was nights out there. Um, it was a lot of fun. But one of the things that came out of that relationship I'm working with John Carpenter was his director of photography was Dean Cundy. And I met Dean there for the first time and I've ended up working with him on several shows and we've become very good friends. And he was the one, uh, coincidentally, that introduced me to the fact that Amblin was doing a show called Back to the Future. I was supervising something for Hal Barwood called Warning Sign, and we were out in Provo, Utah, and Dean was DP, and I was making sure that everything was always good for camera, wetdowns were there, every the smoke machines were always balanced, and whatever you needed, and the fans to go left or right. Um, and so at the end of every show, you kind of say, well, what's next? Am I going to be unemployed for a while, or is there something cooking I can get my name in somewhere? So you ask around, and usually the guy that leads that is always the DP. He's always the first one hired for anything that new that's coming along and he goes i actually have something that's happening over at amblin and i think you'd be really great for it and i'd like to bring you in there and introduce you to the guys and i said great and he was the one that brought me in to meet bob z and bob g and larry paul the production designer on that i think Stephen was in the house at the time but i had done several things for him already by that time um so i, I was okay on the list and then when I got the script, I said, I really like to be responsible for the car because I realized that it was a big star in the movie. And I had worked on another show before called Last Starfighter where we had a car and I hadn't been responsible oh. for the build, but I kind of got, I had to do the work for it to help embellish it when it was on the set. And I didn't want to get caught in that kind of box again. And they said, as long as you make sure that nobody takes a picture of it and you build it and it doesn't get out until it's all ready to go, then that's, that's the deal. But We'll make sure that it follows all the details of the story. And I said, okay, fine. And we built a car. And of course, when we got done, Steven said, bring it up to the back lot and let's have a look at it and see how you've done. And he went through every button on there. He made me press every switch. And does this do this? What about this story point? How about when, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I guess we passed the test and we went to start to shoot pretty soon thereafter. Awesome. <laughs> now, Derek, I don't know if you're going to remember this movie, but when I saw this listed, I had to double check, make sure the the movie poster was right. Heart beeps. You you were the remote operator I don't think for I remember that one. It was Andy Kaufman that and Bernadette was, Peters. That huh. was a great movie. <clears throat> yeah, but it's a great movie, and if you watch it now, it's still a great movie. Yes, yes. Uh, the director's name hmm. was Alan Arkish. Alan Arkish <laughs> was like a lighting technician that worked at the Fillmore, and he knew the Grateful Dead and things like that, and he got some time in with Joe Dante over at Roger Corman's group, where it's baptism by fire, you're on your own, make something happen. And um, and Alan got to direct this movie. And it was with Bernadette Peters, Andy Kaufman, like you said, and robots. So we had to build the robots. But in addition to the robots, they the costumes had a lot of 
gadgets on them. They had yeah. little readouts on that and a bow tie lit up and she had special the, something that reflected her heartbeat. And the whole story is so insane, John Hill. It's two robots that are in a factory standing on a shelf and they decide to make a break for it essentially and look for how plywood is made mm. in a forest of trees. And they go and they pick up robots along the way. And then, of course, there's bad robots. Crime Buster is trying yeah. to eliminate all the renegade. Um, the story was sweet as pie. There's uh, So after building the robots, the one that I was responsible for was the eyes and the ears of the Philco robot. Philco because he got made from a Philco radio out of, a, yeah. I think it was a Peugeot or a Citroen. And... And and then we had another person that was in charge of the head movement and another one for the arms and the utility knives and everything. And then another remote operator for the drivetrain left and right. And here we go. So all four of us had these transmitters and coordinated the action. Um, I had a large part of the emotions for the whole robot. And it was an endearing movie all the way through there's a love scene in it if you look at them when they're in the cave and alan does this wonderful thing charles rocher was the dp and they do a wraparound circular track dolly it's so touching you forget that they're mm. robots it's just yeah. beautiful <laughs> yeah yeah i'm gonna have to check that out oh it's a great movie that was my that was my first first screen credit movie uh oh, the poster wow. hangs on my wall yeah oh, wow. that was the first one there was a there was another one that dealt with uh, robots that came out around the same time that had uh, uh, Nipsey Russell in it, and I don't remember the name of it. That wasn't The Wizard, right? No, it wasn't The Wizard. It was another robot movie. Hmm. I'm not sure, but I don't think I had a part in it. Um, since we brought up Last Starfighter a couple times, let's talk about The Last Starfighter. Yes, I love that movie. Last Starfighter is dead. Um, this was a great idea uh, and a great story. You got a guy that plays video games and wins the top prize. The next thing you know, they, they want to kidnap him and have him fight in their war because it's the same kind of hand gesture. Um, it was done by Lorimar. They came up with the concept of instead of building all the miniatures like they do in Star right. Wars that had already come before, they decided to use a computer right. and got a Cray computer. I think it was from the weather department. I don't know. But Ron Cobb and uh, John Whitney Jr. and Gary Demos got behind the desk and started trying to crank out the best looking rockets that, that they could do. Um, and those days, we didn't have everything. We didn't have flotsam and jetsam. We didn't have ray tracing. We didn't have metallic finish. They didn't have flame. There's a lot of things that just weren't invented yet. And um, so they did the best they could to make that part of it. In the meantime, we had to do the real stuff. And we made a chair that he gets in in the and the rocket and it would go around left and right circular roll pitch y'all mm -hmm. and we actually made it and it actually worked and then we had to put oh, wow. another seat behind it for Grig to be in there and then they added a heads up display that we had to add to it and um, he had the major controls we had the cutoff switches but he could then feel the action live with his hands coordinating where he had to look even though he, he didn't have anything that really to look at he was acting very well and um, that was one of the big pieces that we had to add to it but all the sets like the Kodan Warriors sets we had steam we had liquid nitrogen we all those computer lights and all those panels with all the blinky stuff in the in the big rylon 
hall. Uh, we had smoke. Uh, we blew up the rocket ship at the end. It was a pretty good piece. Um, a lot of conveyor belts, doors opening and closing. My first film, way, not over my head, but it was baptism by fire. Let's just say that. And uh, <laughs> we got through it, and it came out pretty good. And I learned an awful lot. Yes, it did. That's how you learn. Yeah. I, I got a chance to be respected and put on there. And we got through it, and it came out. And it's a feather in my cap, and I'm really happy to do it. Because if I had a dollar for everybody that said, oh, you worked on Last Starfighter? Oh, I love that movie movie i'd be rich <laughs> jonathan betchel <laughs> wrote a beautiful script and they recently did a, a an interview with me and they're they're putting a commentary track on the new 4k that's coming out oh, wow. uh, uh, with oh, cool. my my talk on it so if you want to hear my embellishment on the special effects live as it goes uh, then click on my name on the new 4k coming out real soon cool oh awesome well there's another movie you've done that we are big fans of because we also do a podcast on this franchise star wars return of the jedi uh, uh, yes you mean Revenge of the Jedi? Yes. <laughs> That's all we knew it by. Sometimes we called it Blue Harvest. If we went into the stores and we had to rent an air compressor or parts like that, what's the name of the company? Blue Harvest, you know, and we never let it out that that's what we were doing and working on the third installment. Um that was a big show. Again, I got asked by Roy Arbogast to get on board. We started right up flying to San Rafael. And one of the first big things that we did was we built the star, uh, Scout Walker, pardon me, Scout Walker was what we called it. And um, they had a model that was used in the Empire going across the snow. Right. And they thought it'd be cool to have one. Um, and it had like this two second cameo. And we made the full-size one 26 feet tall. Wow. And we did it in a, in a shop up in uh, San Rafael. Um, uh, and a lot of steel. Billy Lee was uh, the head mechanic on designing the cantilever because it's top-heavy. And right. the only way that it really could stand up is you had to put large, we called them the skis. They were 21-foot I-beams underneath the ground. We had to get the backhoe, dig it all up, put the I-beams in, level through, balance plumb, and then we put the feet on and they could slide back and forth so you could actually make it look like it had a step forward or whatnot. And we'd mount all that. And then we just starting add pieces of the Tinker Toys and we could bend knees and we could articulate the head. And then we had pom-poms on the sides and the guns would lower. We had a hatch on top and then we did a couple of offshoots. We took the leg off and put it on a big uh, grid uh, truss, and we had the Ewoks grab onto it with the rope and get dragged off the screen and trying to slow it down and trip it over. We cut the head off it when we were pretty much done with all the big shots with it, and we mounted the head on a D9 Caterpillar, and then Chewbacca <laughs> gets up inside there oh. and then throws the stormtroopers off, right? And so we could go through the forest and, you know, give more reality to it of trees going by as it crunched through the ferns. Um, there was a lot of good pieces with that. And then we turned around and did all the pyro with the Ewoks to match and blew up that Death Star <sighs> bunker and uh, blew up trees and, and Ewoks and speeder bikes and everything that went with it. Okay. That's amazing. Uh, that's so then, awesome. Then, be, be, before we shot the forest shot we and finished the monster, we went down to Yuma, Arizona, came over to California in the desert there, and the 
the mothership was pretty much complete. I won't say that. It was it was well on its way. And then we worked on the Sarlacc pit. We had skiffs that articulated. Ah. We built a rig for Leah to come across. We had a lot of pyro pieces inside there. We had smoke, accents, things like that. We built the uh, tentacles for the Sarlacc mouth and animated them. And then rigged for all the stunt work, stunt safety. And, uh, you know, they came off the skiff and fell into the hole, got eaten up. So the video is on YouTube showing the behind the scenes of that. Uh, I guess it's of a rehearsal of that sequence of the battle on the on Jabba's skiff. Sure. You're possibly in that in that footage? Uh, I might be. I might be. Oh, um, wow. I was pr- pretty prevalent there. Uh, I worked with Kit West, who was the British supervisor on it. Uh, I did a lot of the pyro that he asked for, uh, reloading the sparks. And he, he was pretty cool. Learned a lot from him. He would always take and ask you to make something that made a very loud boom, even though it had no effect on camera. And he would do that because sometimes the smaller sparks that are very effective visually, they don't have any with them. Right. And he was real clever. He goes, go put one up there called SD-100s. They're very yeah. loud. They're yeah. prime accord charges. And, and, and he said, put one way over there in a mortar and tie it into the sparks. I said, okay. And so every time we did a little spark, all the actors knew, boom, something's happening. And it was an effective tool to motivate the actors. And I, I enjoyed working with them for that. <laughs> well, this main character has appeared, has been making the news recently because he's one of the cutout figures that's behind home plate at the Kansas City Royals. And that's Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. Terry <laughs> uh, Kaiser, right? Yeah. And so uh, that was kind of funny. They they did the movie. I have some really good pictures of that because we could. Um, they did the movie. The movie was done. And they wanted to do publicity. And, of course, at the end of the movie, he's dead. And so they said, we want to do a, a mold, an alginate mold of his head, make a face and put it on a dummy and dress them all up and make it look just like the movie, Bernie. And uh, then we're going to take it and run it around the United States and do press junket with it. And <laughs> so we did. We had him in our shop. And, of course, you have this kind of chill down where you acclimate him to having his head inside something that he, he's, you know, kind of claustrophobic often. Um, and sure enough, we made something that looked so good. And we uh, took pictures side by side. And, and we made two of them. I think one was for the studio and one was to go on the junket. And then it got used up pretty well. And it needed a little bit more makeup. And they flew me out to Atlanta on one of the trips. And I dolled it all back up and textured it. And uh, then it went on for the rest of the tour. It was, that was a fun gag to do because it came out really well. It looked just like them. Um, mm-hmm. And you can tell it was a, a, the phony until you got within three feet of it. Okay. Wow. Now let's talk about some franchises you were on. You worked on. Start with Star Trek. Yes, I was going to bring that Star one up. Star Trek. So here's where you go back to the idea about being involved in the art direction. I didn't get to direct any art, but I sure was responsible for helping the art directors get what they needed to be in the set. And sometimes it wasn't the special effects. When you start off, you you come up building sets and then you work in the prop shop and you make things that they just can't rent out of a prop house or it's something they can find at Home Depot or something like that. So you're making things that are unique. More community, we made the helmet, we made the A 
Cage and the beginning of the title sequences and uh, things yeah. like that. Uh, at that time, Star Trek was was coming out, and they finally had, to, had agreed to let's make a movie, and it was big news. You know, Roddenberry agreed. Let's we're going to go with this. Okay, fine. So inside that set, there are walls that needed texture as opposed to just flat walls, and they need to have some kind of the busyness, much like uh, inside the car of the DeLorean time machine. So what we did was we took a, a, a layout of, of wood, and at those, at, when that was happening, they gave us a bunch of plaster pieces and shapes and tubes and squares and circles and triangles, and we actually attached them to a giant piece of plywood, and we had to make sure that this edge tied into what this edge was, and this edge kind of married and, and made it up to the top edge. And we sent it out to the plaster shop, mold shop, and they made styrene vacuum form pieces, and they made an entire wall inside his set. And then we did all the articulation of their chairs. They had a double swivel elbow on their chairs. And that's the work that I did on Star Trek One. Okay. And then you were on Star Trek the second one? Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan. That one on that one they had a scene where Spock kind of hugs this big radiator of radiation. And he takes the hit for it and saves the planet. And somebody had built it before I was like in the shop working on it uh, and working in the shop. And they had trouble with it. It was fragile and it wouldn't hold together when they needed it to. And it would break the way they wanted it to and everything like that. And so they said, Kevin, go over to the set and see what the problem is and bring it back and make it right and make it work. And they did. They sent me over there and I took it back and I reinforced it and made it so that it could do everything that they wanted to do and he could beat it up and it wouldn't break. We sent it back to the shop. I excuse me, the set and I stood by it until they got the scene and he was able to emote the way he wanted to with it and not worry about it anymore. And uh, I built the element that killed Spock. You know, mm. what can I say? It's Sorry. your fault. <laughs> it's your fault. Um, so uh, I'm just uh, rescue from Gilligan's Island. It was that a was great TV movie. That was the first remake of Gilligan's Island. Yeah. And they got everybody back together. And a wonderful guy named Sherwood Schwartz, who created that show and many others at that time, uh, and in, including the song. Um, and they all came back. And I got to work with all the heroes from childhood that came out in 63 or something like that. Yeah. And um, sure enough, sure enough, we're going to do it. And we got Bob Denver and we got Alan Hale Jr. And we got Marianne and everybody but the ginger we had a new ginger and then we of course we had a scene in there where they get chased by sharks they're stuck on a hut out in the water and so we made another shark fin and uh, strapped it on a diver and he took it out there um, <laughs> there was a lot of fun in that show um, every day because they enjoyed the fact that they got this call back to come and do this show again and everybody was there I mean Sherwood was there his son Lloyd was there it was just a lot of fun because everybody was happy to be involved in this remake and um, we helped rescue them now this one this next one we're gonna mention is kind of close to my heart because it played at the theme park that i work at here in florida captain eo 
Oh. Show. Show. Um, I finished Back to the Future, and they were doing second unit work for Captain EO. And Francis had gone back north, and Walter Murch, his editor, uh, was there to guide us through the pieces that they needed to help finish telling that story. And the accountant on Back to the Future knew the accountant on Captain EO. And he asked her about me, and then I ended up going over there and taking care of all the second unit stuff. And a lot of it was on the floor when they're playing the organ and the different critters are all there. And there had to be a connection for the wire and some sparks. And we had atmospherics (laughs) to do. And there was a lot of pickup pieces that, uh, honestly, I can't remember everything. But this first time I met Michael and they did some dancing. One of the big deals that they hadn't achieved when they shot the show was the dancers coming out of the wall. The dancers had to look like still life bas-relief statues. And then on cue, they all come out, break, jump down on the dance floor and begin this rhythm. And they didn't know how to actually do that in CG, I guess. I don't know. But they asked me if we could do it in a real way. And basically, what we did was we made a pretty tight form in the wall of where they had to stand. And we got dancers and we posed them in a comfortable position as the best that could be done. And it was all black. The whole thing was a darkness. It had a dark mode to it. And we took plaster, lightweight plaster, whipped it up with black dye in it. And with the crew, we all painted our guy, each one of us that was in the wall. And it hardened right away. And we dressed it up. And we tried to do it as quick as we could because go ahead, stand up there and hold your breath and wait for a while and see how long you can do it. And then you got a whole company waiting to coordinate. They, okay, get ready. We're going to put them in the wall. And this plaster hardens right away. And then we color up, touch it up. And it all had to be dyed internally so it didn't look like plaster when it broke. And uh, one, two, three, and go. And they all, they had a lot of cameras on checking out each one. And that was one scene that I was really happy that I was a part of because it came off really well. So Captain EO, and then it went on, it went on to uh, be in Tomorrowland. And uh, I had already started working with Michael on Smooth Criminal at that time. um, Mm -hmm. And he invited me to come to the premiere of Captain EO at uh, Tomorrowland uh, with all his people there. And uh, we had a wonderful party. They closed all of Tomorrowland just for that and a party for everybody that was invited to go see that 3d that was pretty cool stuff and um and shortly after we that, knew they had something good shortly after that they opened well, it here at epcot which is the park that i work at yep oh yeah yep so i, I that's as a manager at Universal in Orlando for the special effects and the pyrotechnics, all the nighttime uh, okay. oh, cool. fireworks. Mm-hmm. I worked there for a bit, too. Yep. Now, what was Smooth Criminal, was it you who came up? Were, were you one of the ones who came up with the that mm-hmm. famous lean gimmick? Or was that all Michael? Um, no, that was an idea that Michael had, and he didn't know how to do it. But he thought it was something that he wanted to do. But I had started with Michael in the end of 84, excuse me, 85. And he invited a few of us to come to his house and talk about his ideas. The other guys, they didn't they didn't. They didn't want to be involved in it at the time but i just loved it and i loved michael and we spent a lot of time uh developing the story and the storyboards we made for him and on his bedroom floor just picking out pictures picking out pictures of the car um you know i went to italy to get that six hundred thousand dollar new Bertoni strato oh. zero and bring it back and replicate those 
And uh, there was just a lot of stuff all the way through there. Uh, I was on it for about a year and a half. Um, just a fantastic project. But at one point during the dance sequence, he said that he wanted to be able to do something where he could lean. And he's so creative and so inventive like that. And the wardrobe supervisor came to me with one of the loafers and said that they're trying to do something. And they showed me the heel. And they had tried to work out an idea with a plate on it and figure out how they could make it do what he was asking it to do. And so we took everything mm -hmm. and extrapolated that. And everybody says, well, they just bent over and their feet were nailed to the ground or something like that. What we decided to help make the marriage between a static shot and a moving shot was we made one shoe with a the hole, the slot in it, and one peg on the floor, which is basically a lag bolt to secure them so that when they danced, they could slide into it. They could do like a move and come in and latch on and then begin the lean but it would break their shins if they did it we took and put a fly belt a very standardized item that we do we used piano wire back then we didn't use these big cables that are paid painted orange now that they can just take out with computers. We put all five dancers in a fly, put them in wire, up in the air, up to the, the triangle uh, spreader bar, up to the rigging of the shivs, over, down, and off camera. And we had five guys and five dancers, and we were all ready with them. We had to keep the, the talk to the wire so you don't spin and nick it because then you'd lose it. They, they'd break really easily. Right. I had Michael, and it was all about a cadence, and you watch it, and then just they spin and they slide on that peg and all of us go down and back up and we probably did it uh, hmm. um, to get coverage maybe a half a dozen times and everybody was safe and it was just just wow, wow a big wow factor and that's how it was really done so so they must have wow. carried huh. they must have carried that rig over then when he went on tour because he would do that same maneuver on tour I never saw the mover, maneuver repeated they do one where they put another knee out that helps them okay. um i know that they might have had some done where just locked in position and they did a little bit but i've never seen anybody coordinate it like we did and okay. i've heard a lot of stories about it they put a deal in the american medical journal about uh, safety and all this stuff um <laughs> we did it we designed it we put it all together for him and it was his idea and he came up with the idea of putting a slot in the shoe and being able to grab onto a peg and the wardrobe guys and uh, the choreographers uh, worked with us and we worked out that beautiful move and uh, it's it's What's... it's really <laughs> i'm happy we got to do it it, it was innovative Interesting. it's still talked about yeah. today that um, is true. Now I'm I'm going to say I'm going to mention this one, and I think this is one that probably could have used your help as a writing coach if it was being done today. That's Dolph Lundgren's The Punisher. The Punisher was The Punisher was a, a movie uh, about a guy that's got a bunch of bad guys, and he's got to punish them. Okay, but the movie was shot. The movie was done, and a title design Wayne Fitzgerald called me up and said. We want to do this trick shot where we have the silhouettes, high contrast silhouettes of the bad guys uh, silk screened onto pieces of glass. And we want the glass to break. And it will be part of the title sequence into the movie. 
and you can see it. There's a big long series of these glass breaking with the heroes right. on them. And so, uh, okay, how do we break the glass without being seen? And how can we do it so it's really dramatic and this and that? And so what we did was we made a shoe that you could slide the glass into horizontally. And then we went and put it up in the air. And we suspended it on the grid on our catwalk and tied it off and made it firm. And then above that, far enough, we put a blue screen panel so that when you looked at it, it was in blue screen. And we cross-lit it with straw lighting to help accent it. And right. we put an air mortar, pressurized mm -hmm. cannon, full of glass marble because the glass marble will just turn blue screen blue and they'll disappear. And then on the mm -hmm. ground of the stage, we built a coffin, a bulletproof coffin coffin that the camera operator could get in and he had a high speed airy camera and we'd huh. pressurize the mortar stand by to go shut the door roll camera three two one hit that button it exhaust and then the the bbs the glass marbles would shatter that glass and that glass would fall down and what he did was he ramped the speed on it so it became slow motion as it finally got down oh. to the bottom it was a fabulous oh, idea yeah. it worked out with wayne fitzgerald yeah. and it if you watch it it looks cool and you never think how'd they do that because you're ready to sit down and watch this movie but it was really smart stuff and each one had a different color a muted color, like a mustard and a tan and things like that. It was pretty, uh, pretty well executed. It looks great. It's a great piece. Mm. Now, I think it's interesting that your your profession doing all these things and coming up with these really brilliant ideas on how to do all these these tricks and these these different visual effects and everything. I don't think I don't think you guys really get enough appreciation in my mind for for just the the brilliant things you you guys have to come up with does does that ever i mean is that just something you take in stride or does that ever kind of frustrate you or well you have to understand that firstly you have a good crew you get good people to surround you you've probably heard that a million times i try to get the best mm. i try to be on a decent show get good money get good help get good ideas okay guys what do we need to do how can we sort this out what what where, where should we go with this and then it's a pool of ideas well we could do this we could put this on top and this over here so you have that and you you don't get much but every now and then when a gag goes good I know that when we did the speaker gag with all the pieces and the elements that happened in Doc Brown's lab when Michael goes flying back, yep. that, that we hit a home yep. run on. And Bob was just thrilled about it. And he made mention of it. He said, Kevin, I want you to go inside the speaker and on action, I want you to drop another piece of the foam. And then I want you to come out and take a bow. I mean, he was that gracious <laughs> about it to me. And so every now and then you hit a home run out That's of the awesome. park. And the crew knows that it was a great shot. And the camera got it. And everybody's happy with it. And they realized everything that we had to go to put into it because they're, there, we're, they, they're with us. They see the cords. They see the wires. They see the pyro. Right. They know how it's going to happen. But they don't know how good it's going to look until we all press the buttons. And um, that's always nice when that happens. Uh, sometimes egg on your face didn't work out. Okay, we, we can reset right away. Let's go again. I got a better way to do it. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, when it's good, it's good. And, and uh, people know and you get some respect for that. And it's appreciated. Mm. I, I totally good. understand. I'm a 
I'm an audio engineer uh, at Walt Disney World, yeah. and I've been in, I've been in the industry 33 plus years, so I, I totally get it. It's uh, yeah, every now and then you get you get the high five. Yep. So what what made you decide you wanted to go into special effects and pyro and prop making? Well, what what happened was I was working at a restaurant in Martha's Vineyard in Edgartown called the Harborside. And I was oh. a busboy. Oh, nice. And I, when I worked there, it was Easter, and I had just started there. And on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, this six stop came in. These six guys came in. And they just were just having a good time there, talking it up and telling war stories. And I could tell something was happening. And they started talking about films and shows they had worked on. And, okay, great. And I kept them watered and refreshed. And then they left. And um, one of the gentlemen left his valise underneath the table. And so I grabbed it and scurried out and, wait, does anybody leave this? One gentleman said, oh, my gosh, you saved my life. Do you know what's in there? And I said, no, I didn't look in there because there's storyboards in there, storyboards. When we do a film, we, we make a whole comic book about what we're going to do. And I said, are you guys going to make a film? And they said, yeah. And I said to him, well, what's it about? And he said, it's about a shark that's going to eat your whole life. <laughs> and that was my introduction to Jaws. And four days later, I got hired uh, down to the boathouse. The orca had just come in. And um, I started laboring and working my way up and became the office coordinator for the construction department and then went to work with a painter crew and we painted the cabanas and some work at the Brody house and lifeguard stations, boardwalks, snow fences, paint the Orca. And then the sharks came to town and then we loaded them in the upstairs of the barn. And I ended up working with Roy Arbogast the first time. And we ended up working on all the rubber and the teeth and the jaws. And the guys came in to do the electronics and the pneumatics and make the tail move and the mouth open. And then the painter boss, Ward Welton, came back up and taught me how to paint the shark. And we textured it with walnut, chopped walnut and uh, silica sand and gave it that look to, you know, white and gray and added all the modeling to the mouth and the teeth. And I worked on it six months and ended up loading them up and sending them home and saying goodbye. And I got to do other refurbishments after everybody left. I was still working on Jaws on Martha's Vineyard. And I finally said, heck, I'll just go to Hollywood. And I was, and I came out in November of 74 and started working out here. And next thing you know, Stephen was doing Close Encounters. And a lot of that crew just went right on onto that one. We went down to Mobile, Alabama for six months. So that's how it went. Rolled right in. Very cool. Oh, that's that's a great story. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. It's wild. It's unbelievable when you think about it. But that's how it went down. <laughs> that's awesome. Right place, right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Were, was there before you got involved with Jaws? Was there anyone who was a uh, an inspiration f- for you? Um, my father taught me to work hard and, and be nice to people and be cordial and be polite and you know look them in the eye, shake up their hand for them. I had that. Um, but in high school, I was on the creative side. I wasn't the sports jock. I, I was the guy mm-hmm. in the camera club that took pictures of the sports team and uh, audiovisual club and then uh, head of the drama department, did acting and won a little trophy and 
was thought of mine that I'd do something like that. And, but, you know, life plays strange mm. games. And the next thing you know, you end up in different places. And why did they send me to Martha's Vineyard in the spring of 74? And right. boom, there I was. And mm. somebody left a bag under the table. And <laughs> that was it. Well, I'm going to ask because Derek and I could see them in your background. Our listeners can't because it's an mm -hmm. audio show. Those are Emmys behind you? These? Yes. This, this is an Emmy. I won this for a Spielberg production called Earth 2. Which oh, yeah. In Santa oh. Fe, New Mexico. That was a great show with Clancy Brown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a great cast. Yeah. And I was on that for over a year in Santa Fe. This is a Clio. This is the best in uh, advertising. We won that with Michael Bay. We did a commercial called uh, 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 Levi's. And we had to make all the Levi's clothes as if uh, there was nobody inside them. It was just the clothes performing. So we did a lot of puppeteering, a lot of wire forms, ah. a lot of action to the other props and the motorcycle and the ball bounces and the door locks open and they light a candle and the girl's jean jacket is kind of revealing and, and things like that. And uh, worked with a great uh, visual effects hmm. supervisor, Fred Mundy. And we had to do both the blue screen of the clothes this way, and then we had to make sure we featured the inside so we could have that piece that give the dynamic that it was a, an empty, empty, just the clothes. Um, uh, and it was a great job. It was really good. And uh, the, the commercials, you know, award-winning. And um, that was, I had done a, two other commercials with them. And then we got on this one and uh, we hit a home run. That's awesome. Um, yeah. There's a couple other things in here. There's um, one, a Saturn award for back to the future. And there's okay. stuff up oh. on the walls and, Blacks and you know you just keep at it and every now and then you get some accolades that's yeah. awesome that's awesome yeah that is that's good to hear Derek you got any other questions oh uh, yeah I was wondering so you've done a couple of of uh, um like single episodes of TV shows and stuff yes and I was wondering what that's like what it's like to to go into a show and have to do a special effects for an already established show as compared to like starting up a movie where you're already you're more involved in the movie is it is it is it easier or harder to do sh shows or depending on what they're asking there, i guess there that's a great question and i will say this i've done 80 million interviews and nobody has ever asked me that question and i'm glad you asked me hey all right because <laughs> it's true it's true what happens you have a shop at universal that's full of guys working on things and making breakaways and welding up props and building everything mm -hmm. and you're in there getting sawdust all over and this and that and in the meantime, there's shows on every stage. We had Six Million Dollar Man. We had The Bionic Woman. We had Emergency, Nancy right. Drew, Hardy Boys. The list went on and on. There was something on every stage. And so every now and then they'd get a call where they needed extra help on a show for somebody needed to hold the other end of something. And, and, and they'd come out of that their office cage and they'd look at the landscape of all these people and they'd go, Pike, you're going over to stage 12 to work on Quincy. They need a wet down or a fireplace or an elevator door or whatever yeah. it is. Right. And one of the, one of the secrets to, to my success to get my ass out of the shop and onto the set where the hours are longer, craft service people, it's cleaner. Everything is I always <laughs> wore a collar on my shirt. I was famous for the Oxford cloth <laughs> dress shirt and I, I would roll up my sleeves. So, 
my hands didn't get my shirt too dirty. But that was one of the best bets that I could be because they would enjoy having me on the set. Now, I go to the set. Mm. Sometimes I'm all by myself. Sometimes I'm not working with somebody. Sometimes they're going to light the fireplace or you've got some simple gag that you can do by yourself. And you really have to go in there and indoctrinate yourself to everybody on there like, oh, here right. comes special defects. What job do we have to do today? And stuff like that, <laughs> especially on sitcoms. Whenever I came on the set for sitcoms, they knew that it rearranged their whole schedule of how they shoot. And it would be some kind of interruption and some kind of focused, dedicated shot. Ah. Show, and it interrupted their normal weekly flow of things. But when right. you go on to the other set, you've got to find the first AD, say who you are, say what you're here for. Okay, fine. It's probably not going to happen for another five hours, but stand by. You never know. It might change, whatever it is. And you've got to have that expression of cordiality and uh, offer a modicum of, of uh, smarts to let them know that you're going to do a good job and you're there to help them out. And it was fun. You meet people. And again, you can grab the script off the rack on the wall next to the call sheet. And you can start looking up the scene and looking up the dialogue and follow along with your program and watch it make a movie, watch it make a TV show and meet the stars. And hey, how do you do? And maybe you're working with them. Sometimes, you know, Steve Austin had all these electronics on his <laughs> arm. And, you know, there was all right, sorts right. of stuff. Holmes and Yo-Yo, we had we had this big chest uh, making all sorts of lights and actions happen. It was all kinds of stuff. It was fun. It was a good atmosphere. Hard work, but there's always work. We always had plenty of work to do. And consequently, we always got good checks and made a lot of money back then. So it was some great times learning. Great times. But that's a good question. And yes, you do. You have to go in there and say, okay, I'm here and I'm here to help you and what's going to happen and let them feel comfortable that you're going to do a good job. Mm. Outside of the obvious, Back to the Future, Last Starfighter, uh, some of the big projects you were on, what was your favorite project overall? Uh, in the results, obviously, Back to the Future, there's over 160 time machine replicas built around the world. Uh, I'm known for that mostly wherever I go right. when I get calls for for fans, for pictures, uh, you know, it's usually myself and the DeLorean. Um, uh, so I'm obviously very proud of the work that we did. It was an extremely difficult job. It was very hard. Bob wanted to make sure he hit a home run. Um, he wanted to up his average with it. And uh, the work was a crunch every time. And, you know, we were nights out there for a long time. They made some replacements and we got a new actor. And then we had to start all over with gags that we'd already thrown away. And then the car and its maintenance and its operations. There was just a lot of work on it, more mm -hmm. than you can imagine, because the story just flows so well and the result of that was a very happy movie that mom says kids go watch back to the future it's on tv every day it's g-rated and it's wonderful <laughs> uh other movies that you might not think about as far as special effects but that i was so happy that i got to work on are two pictures one was called ed wood directed yeah. by tim burton oh, and yeah. that is one of the finest crafted films that he has done it just was so well told um in a performance by martin landau working with johnny depp telling yeah. the story about uh, a man's life a biopic black and white we had to do homework to research um pyrotechnics back from that time when and Edward was trying to make his little cheap B movies and things like that. I liked it. I liked the biopic. I liked the story. Uh, Tim is a unique guy to work for. You don't get a lot of input. 
I'll, I'll put it mildly, um, but uh, he was extremely creative, and he told a wonderful story. He starts with a shot where the, the casket opens, and um, Jeffrey Jones sits up, and it goes through the window that it's raining outside, and then he ends up going across Hollywood and all these signs and graveyards and, and everything like that, and then he comes down on Coanga Boulevard in front of a theater, and Johnny Depp, Ed Wood, is walking back and forth, waiting to see the press show up to see his play in the rain scene. So he took the rain from inside the stage all the way across this miniature field and all the way out to the live set uh, out in Hollywood. Mm. And so when we were talking about it, I said, you need miniature rain. And he looked at me like I was crazier than he was. And he <laughs> goes, what do you mean? I go, we can make rain with these little mist heads and dial it down. So it's just tiny droplets that the motion control camera can pick up as it does this travel across the 60-foot miniature set. And that marriage there, when you look at the rain, it's pretty seamless, and it's a it's a pretty remarkable shot. Um, so that, and, you know, we had the fun house, and there was just a lot of gags that don't get realized because the story is told so well. Uh, Larry and Scott mm. did a great job on that. But the other one, the big one, is Fight Club. Oh, yes. Oh, interesting. And what's the first rule? We don't talk about Fight Club. You don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> but if you worked on it, you can talk about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I worked with David Fincher, and that guy's as tough as they come. Uh, he, he can be strong and firm and demanding and knows exactly what he wants. And there's no fool in him. He knows how every piece of equipment works. He knows how everything's supposed to go. And there's no making any mistakes or anything like that. He's right on your case. But I love that story. I got a day job doing some smoke on that set, and then I was done. And then all of a sudden, they had a change of personnel, and they asked for me to come back and work on the crew full time right after the Christmas break. And so I had I had a powder car, pyrotechnic card, and I got thrown on the set as the set, for, and I worked the whole show taking care of David's <laughs> quick demands and it was brutal, but I love that story and just look at everything that's in that movie and try to explain that story to somebody and tell them what you're working on. It's just so damn difficult yeah. because of the uniqueness of it. And then you get to the part where they're driving the, Continentals and they smashing into a continental and then of course you don't do that once with David you do it like three times with you know six continentals and then all of a sudden he decides he wants to do it again like two months later so we set the whole thing up again and smash continentals and smash <laughs> continentals in the rain like fourteen cameras and make the tires spin and the windows blow out and it's fog it in and you know have rain tires but when he looks up he doesn't want to see the source of the rain and oh my gosh big stuff and we made roundy round where brad yeah. you get in and spin him around in the car and tumbling and there's a lot of pieces in there that were surgically done surgically done and mm. um, i just love the story i love the way it looked i love the music i loved everything about it and i love david fincher and then we went on to do a music video called uh, judith with uh, a perfect circle Ooh. and got to do that with him again yeah. and, and it was just <laughs> in the same david uh different different medium and um mm. great time i really do i really i really love the guy one, one of my favorite sound drops that i i use off and on on this show um it's from futurama where they parried it and it goes something like this no, I, I get it i get it the first rule of robot fight club is you don't talk about robot fight club 
That's kind of funny. <laughs> yep. yep. There's a lot of those. <laughs> yep. That's a good one. So, um, wow. Fight Club and, uh, and Ed Wood. Great choices. Yeah. Yeah. They are. Now, yeah. You you built the actual DeLorean. There's no, been s- I built the time machine. I mean, the time machine. There's <laughs> okay. That is a difference. Yeah. <laughs> you, you built the time machine out of a DeLorean. Out of a DeLorean. Do you have any of the collectibles that have come out based on it? I see the camera right here. Yeah. Can you see the camera? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the camera that he uses when he films it. You know. Oh, oh, that's cool. I was gonna cool. say that, that's, that's awesome. Not- that's not the actual prop. That's when I found that Mary's the actual one that was used in the movie. And uh-huh. um, somebody, you know, I, I got it when I was in France. It was in a yard sale, actually. And I tagged uh-huh. everybody. I said, is this the camera like the one? He said, yeah. And if you look at it, all the dials are in France, French, and it's uh, it's um, PAL. It's not NTSE and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, no, you, you, you know, you don't save parts. Uh, they went on to make a couple other movies when I was with Michael Jackson. And so anything that we had you know they came and made sure they got everything that was associated with the shows um you know it's not yours to take and so what are you going to do take one of the deloreans and hide it in a barn or something well i I was meaning i was meaning more along the lines of like i have the the lego time machine when lego introduced it as a kid yeah um Yes. Transformers this year. Yeah, they're coming out. On, it's coming on. out with um, a Transformer Back to the Future mashup, and, and the Transformer's name is Gigawatt, and it looks like the time machine. Okay. Um, 1.21. Yep. So, I mean, are are any of those, do you have any of that type of stuff that you collect? or? Um, one of the things you have to appreciate was when we're building the movie, building the car and doing everything, we didn't know how things were going to be famous. Right. Mm. Um, But it became a famous movie. And then it became more with those props that were in two and three, of course. So the idea about the skateboard, we didn't have that in one. We had just a regular one, not a flying one. And the shoes that tied themselves and the pet and the sports almanac and all of that. Um, You know, I just from my own, I was never a big collector of that kind of stuff in toys and, oh, I want that toy or I like that. Or I think my appreciation was the fact that the movie spoke for itself uh, and in perpetuity forever that they captured it on film because I can just watch and I go, oh, that, see that? Look, I did, you know, but, um, but I never was a collector of kind of things like that. And uh, I probably have one or two little bits. Of, I've got some name tags and some parking passes and some badging and and some goodies <laughs> like that. I have people that come to the house from time to time and they go every single album that I have, every single thing on photographs, and they take pictures in this uh, hook. We did a lot of all the hooks and the crossbows and the yeah. swords and the dagger. All right. We d- we designed and built uh, all those uh, gold, you know, polished everything done real well. Leather. Uh, all the tomato launchers worked. We were responsible for all that prop construction. Um, I have some wonderful drawings done by Jim Bansu, my favorite artist, um, but I don't have any of the, the knives or swords or anything like that. It goes to the set and they use them. Maybe producers grab them. I don't know. Um, no. 
I, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 I got I, posters. I have posters of the shows that I have screen credit on. I was I was always uh, careful about that, and oh, that meant a lot to me. That's so pretty cool. I have a pretty. Yeah. I got a pre. I'll show. I'll show you when we're done. Uh, there's some nice okay. galleries. Hey, have you been surprised on how much the the time machine became such a pop culture icon? Um, you know, it was kind of almost the, the show that would never die. Uh, we finished the show and they said, Kevin, you're going to go out with the advertising crew that's going to make the teaser, the trailer. They're out of New York, wonderful company, Art Greenberg. And I enjoyed a, a long relationship with them. But we did the teaser for them out in Lancaster, out in the desert, um, and did that wonderful bit where he kicks the tire and how yeah. far you go in 30 years. We did that. And then we had to provide the car up for you. Huey Lewis on his music video. Um, and then hey. we had to, we did a commercial where the license plate turns into uh, the VHS box when it went to yeah, video. Yeah. We shot that. I, I yeah. directed that. We had to do Trails of Fire and smoke it in. And we put the armature and we made a custom size hero artwork box that was the same size as the license plate. So the transition would be mm. smooth. Um, then, um, then they wanted to have it up on the tours, so we got a big backing that said, Welcome to Hill Valley at the entrance to the tours, and we put the chain guards up, and we brought the car up there, and we maintained it for a while until it kind of got uh, um, left to age prematurely. I'll just say it like that. Um, <laughs> and so it just kept coming back with more and more and more stuff all the time on that movie. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I was surprised when someone made one of the first replicas of the time machine that wasn't within the auspices of Universal on their tours. They made another one that they could run around right. on the tours so that the A card didn't get beat up. Um, and then people started copying them. And then I was saying, when's somebody going to start uh, having the attorneys call people? And they didn't do that. <laughs> they just let people make them, I guess, because they assumed they'd get the advertising value every time somebody saw the car. Oh, let's go watch Back to the Future. Okay. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was curious in the beginning. I was concerned legally what was going to happen. And then it was just like the, you know, the, the wheels fell off and everything. Just everybody got a chance to make their own car if they wanted to. And I was flattered by it. But then, of course, it's like that telephone game. It just changes a little bit each time. And sometimes they make right. them. Of course, they're not really show cars you're going to film. A lot of people use them as daily drivers or right. they rent them for weddings or chairman of the board. They're <laughs> going to take the company into the future and things like that. But uh, and I can respect that they're, they're making a drivable car as opposed to our showpiece that was right. for its close up most of the time. Right. Um, but, you know, when they start changing the colors of things and they put all the blue LEDs on it, and it gets a little cartoony. I'm not so fond of that. And um, I kind of let the fans know it's like closer is better than doing your own interpretation, like a mustache on the Mona Lisa. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I, I will say two months ago, we finally introduced uh, my daughter to the Back to the Future franchise, and she loves it. And she's 10 God. currently. So that's great. And she, and she, she can it. enjoy that. 
She she does. Yeah. Um, where can people find you online? Just go on Facebook. Everything's there. My uh-huh. email, my number, my address. Everything's right there. Film tricks at Mac.com. Film like the movie, tricks like the serial at Mac like the computer.com. You can get awesome. a hold of me every day. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I welcome Excellent. the uh, uh, welcome the questions and uh, all the interest. Well, thank you for joining us this week. It's been an absolute blast. Guys, yeah, definitely. I have loved Mike, every yeah, of great, it. Great, great. Yeah, you gave me some great questions to think about, and I appreciate it. I hope your fans like the answers. Oh, I hope I hope you enjoyed oh, me. I'm sure they will. I hope you enjoyed great. the questions. We had fun asking. My pleasure. Them. Thanks uh, for having me. Um, on that note, hopefully this is one of those interviews where you're not asking. Want to know more? <laughs> The bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production.